Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, host of Alligator Preserves, and I have an incredibly special guest with me today, all the way from Beersheba, the capital of the Negev Desert in Israel. We have with us today Miriam Green, the author of The Lost Kitchen, Reflections and Recipes from an Alzheimer's Caregiver. So stay tuned. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Miriam, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Thank you. And I, I can't believe we've, we're actually doing this, and you are my very first international interviewee. I am very excited about this, too. Uh, Miriam, I'm going to have you guess what my first question might be to you today. Um, you want to know about my mom? I do. I do. How is Naomi doing today? Today, my dad reports that she was a little feisty and didn't want to eat her dinner. <laughs> that is a short version of a longer story about my mom, uh, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's eight years ago, more than eight years ago. I wrote this book about when my parents were living in Netanya, which is a coastal city uh, along Israel's above Tel Aviv in uh, Israel's coast. And about a year and a half ago, they moved from Netanya to live near me in Beersheba. And my mom's Alzheimer's took a turn for the worse, I think the move precipitated a, a decline in her abilities. And after about eight months of living here, my mom was moved to a care facility. So she is unfortunately not in the same place as she was in the book that I, that I wrote about. Right. Uh, and this is a, a difficult topic, and you've written an amazing book, and I'll get to that. But first of all, would you introduce yourself as only you can to our listeners out there? Who is Miriam Green? Okay, so I was born in London. My parents are both British. They grew up in the East End of London. And when I was about two months old, my father did a postdoc uh, in chemistry at the Weizmann Institute in Rehovot, Israel. He wanted to stay in Israel. He could not find a job. And instead of going back to England, where he had experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, he took our family to the States. So I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, um, from about the age of two. Um, I went to college in Ohio at Oberlin College, and then moved back to Washington, D.C. And after meeting my husband-to-be, we decided together to uh, immigrate to Israel. And we've been here now almost 29 years. With your three children, two cats, and a snake named Popcorn? That is, that is correct. Is it, is it a corn, corn snake? Is that why the name Popcorn, or where'd that come from? Absolutely. Um, and the funny thing is, is that for 10 years, we thought this snake was a male snake. And then um, this past summer, she laid some eggs. So we now know she is a female snake. <laughs> I, guess, I guess so. Our youngest son, Jake, had a couple of corn snakes when 
when he was in his younger years. And then when he went away and left the snake, we decided maybe the snake should go live someplace else. So, <laughs> Miriam, would you read your the very first poem that's in your book in the introduction? Because, well, let's just say it sets the stage for what you talk about in this book. So I would say that the book is a combination of prose, poetry, and recipes. And it's a little hard to describe how I got to that combination, but they all, all of the elements work to tell the story about our family's journey with my mom and her Alzheimer's. And so this poem is called Brain Tangles. Dandelions clump like tumors in the riotous garden of your mind. Empty diagnosis, you insist. No one tells the truth, not the doctors, not your husband, not God behind his one-way mirrors. Sometimes you admit you're confused. The clock's hands read like a foreign language. Houseplants wither without water. There is a book in the freezer, coins in the sugar bowl. You jam the wrong key into the locked door and rage when it won't open. You wander rooms you have already abandoned. If there is a key, it is hidden in the chaos of your drawers. We sort through piles of single socks and match the pairs, as if we could patch your brain, tangles that constrict all knowledge until even your name is lost. Thank you. You talk about what kind of book this is. And this is, I would say, one of the most unique books I've come across in a very long time because in fewer than 250 pages, you made me smile and cry and drool and scratch my head over how you were able to incorporate so many elements in one book. How did you learn? From whom did you learn? How did it all come together? Do you have a background in writing? Did you have a mentor who helped you? I mean, you're not even—you're a self-professed, not a foodie, and and yet you have at the end of each chapter you have amazing recipes that tie into what you were writing about. How did you learn to write? Tell me about your writing background. So I—I I think I've been writing since uh, elementary school. I can remember that far back. And uh, along the way, I had certainly support. When I was in high school, I was the editor of my uh, high school newspaper. And at Oberlin College, I had a minor, I majored in um, creative writing. And when I graduated, there were two things that I wanted to do for myself. One was to move to Israel, and the other was to continue writing. And it took me, I guess, about... 18 years to figure out how to start writing again uh, after I had moved to Israel. I have uh, three children, and I guess very early on in my motherhood, I, I saw this advertisement for a program at a, a university here called Bar Ilan University, which is near Tel Aviv, and they were advertising a creative writing program, master's creative writing program in English in Israel, and I thought, this is what I want to do. I did not enroll until my youngest child could fend for himself. <laughs> Smart. And, and then it took about, I think it was um, about two and a half years of one day a week traveling to and from Bar Ilan for the program. And I focused on poetry. And I do have a mentor in Jerusalem who was the poetry teacher at the program. And 
just as I was graduating, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So there was this neat transition from traveling once a week to learn and study to traveling once a week to visit my parents in their coastal city of Netanya. And poetry came with me because the only way I could sort of face what was going on was to turn to writing. And we realized very early on that my mom was making mistakes in the kitchen. And my dad, who had never really cooked, had to step in. And we joked. We said, oh, let's write a cookbook. And, you know, we're going to watch your progress and see how you do. And we were going to call this book The Man's Emergency Cookbook. <sighs> and I could imagine the scene of his entering the kitchen replaying itself all around the world because women are twice as often uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's as men. And his joke became a medium for me to keep writing and create something that was beyond the poetry that I was working on. I think that at some point I realized that the book, that a, a, a cookbook was too narrow a, a format for me. So I branched into more poetry and prose, storytelling, really. So, I mean, this, this is a memoir, a memoir, a cookbook, a poetry book, uh, instruction in, in Jewish tradition. You have so many things in here. It's fascinating. When you talk about your father and going into the kitchen and the idea of changing roles and the idea of traditional roles between parents. I had to laugh. Uh, I think it was page 109 around there. You talk about your mom spoiling your dad. And I think it was their generation. I mean, my mom, even after my dad retired for a good 30 years, would still make sure that she was home at lunch to make sure that, you know, dad had a sandwich, <laughs> you know, goodness gracious, if he, if she left him and he, he would have to put together a peanut butter and jelly on his own. And I, I think that just, I don't know, maybe that was our parents' generations. But now your father, Jack, has had to learn to take on a role that is not traditionally his. That's right. That's right. He has a chemistry background. So I think that worked to his favor, um, you know, as he was cooking in the kitchen. And he, I guess it's tapered off a little bit because at first they had a 24-hour caregiver. And she helped a lot in the kitchen and with the, the laundry and other tasks that once had been my mom's. And now he's living on his own. So he's, you know, less inclined to make a complete meal. So <laughs> but he comes to me quite often, at least once a week for a good, good meal. And you live pretty close by? We live five houses down from each other. Oh, so. that's, that's beautiful. You talk about, as the disease progresses, you talk about walking on eggshells and the unbalanced feelings and the confusion that were present. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. In terms of my mom? In terms of your mom, her confusion and, and sense of unbalance. You know, it, it's interesting because all of the behaviors that she exhibits today existed when she was first diagnosed, perhaps in less extreme ways. So I can tell you about uh, one incident just very recently. I went to visit her, and she was sitting at the table in the main room. Um, I think she had a book in front of her or a game, and 
she looked up at me and she said, oh, is that me? And I was absolutely stunned because it's one thing not to recognize me, which is something I have come to uh, accept, but to see herself reflected outside of herself was very strange for me. And I, of course, told her, no, it's your daughter Miriam. And, and we were fine and we started singing and, and we were talking. But it was the strange uh, moment of realizing that she has no framework anymore for understanding reality. You mentioned that in an Alzheimer's patient, the present is immediate because the past is lost and the future is non-existent. Have you read the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle? No. He espouses the idea of living in the present, living in the now, all that. And so when I read that part about, you know, the present being immediate and you do it, you've done a TED talk, which I'll have a link to in my show notes later about that, about living right now and finding joy in that. Talk to me about the challenges of everything being right now, right here with no past or future. So the first thing you have to, I think, recognize is that when I go and visit my mom, I'm aware that she has no recollection of me as a child. Um, my past has virtually disappeared. Her sense of herself is of uh, being a little girl. She often asks to go home. And I believe that when she says home, she's talking about her home with her parents when she was a little girl. Uh, her parents are no longer alive. And so, so you start with this very sort of like tabula rasa, this blank page. What does remain are her, are the songs that she knows from childhood and from her very young age and maybe her twenties and thirties and a little bit beyond that. And so I connect with her through song. We sing a lot of nursery rhymes together. We sing a lot of show tunes. When we walk around the hallways, we might sing the, you know, the Wizard of Oz or uh, we're off to see the wizard. And another one that she really likes is uh, we're a couple of swells with that uh, Judy Garland and Fred Astaire sang. Oh. So, you know, she has a range of music that is still existing in her brain and uh, it's retained. It will hopefully be retained almost until the end of her life. That's oh. where we connect. I was actually going to ask about that, if that's still helping. You talk about Oliver Sacks' Musicophilia, Tales of Music in the Brain. And uh, did, you, did you read that, that whole book? Uh, I did. I did. He, he was a tremendous author. It's fascinating how music heals. I was even looking at patients with, with physical disorders and when music is put on, they can walk more fluidly. It's remarkable. It, it kind of makes me want to go into a study of, I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the brain and how it works, but I'm so happy that you can still sing with her. Absolutely. It really is uh, one of the best ways to communicate with her. And she also has earphones that we have programmed with about 200 songs on it that loop over and over. And she... Quickens. She becomes very lively when she's listening to this 
these headphones uh, and she'll be singing away when nobody else can hear the music. And you talk about also situations that are that are difficult or, uh, again, Alzheimer's patients can become combative and not want to do things that you know they need to do. And music has helped you get through those situations as well? Right. So uh, one of the prime examples that I talked about was when my mom had to take a shower and I was there to help her. I would sing from South Pacific. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. And she would sing along and it would ease her tension because the bathroom is one of the uh, most difficult places for someone with Alzheimer's to go. They forget how to take care of themselves. Hygiene falls by the wayside because it's uncomplicated to unbutton your buttons or take your clothes off or set the water to the right temperature or not take the towel with you into the shower. (laughs) Over and over, we found that there were difficulties. And so when I was able to, I was with my mom in the bathroom. You talk about evidence that she knows things aren't right and your attempts to divert her conversation. You know she's aware of her memory loss. Was that just in the early stages, or do you, or just, do you think she still is aware that things aren't normal? I would say that I think she's still aware. I don't know that she can verbalize it as well as she could when in the early stages, but for example, if she she struggles to find words and she makes up these wonderful words to try and explain what's going on in her thoughts or around her. And uh, sometimes uh, myself or whoever's visiting will try and supply the right word and she'll acknowledge that we, that yes, that's the word, that she knows she's missing it, but she can't, she can't verbalize it. Is there poetry in how she's trying to verbalize things? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I have to collect some, some words that she's uh, created. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Humor, humor and other emotions. You talk about your dad joking or your dad had a joke. Talk to me about all the emotions or some of the emotions. What are the, what are the most common emotions you go through on a day-to-day basis in dealing with your mom? So I, I guess today I, I would say right now <laughs> I had an opportunity to either go visit my mom or cook something for dinner. And I opted to cook something for dinner. It is hard to see her in the place in which she's in now, except, and then when I don't go, I feel guilty because I know that whenever I'm there, it makes a difference, even if it's just for a few moments. So what I try to do is when I have the stamina is to go for a short visit. I think that that works best for all of us. My mom's uh, care facility is about a five minute drive from here. And if I walk it when it's not too hot, it's about a 20 minute walk. And I love, I love being with her. And yet there are times when I know that I will come away feeling very depressed and very sad. A, that she's not with me. B, that there are other people caring for her. C, that the situation has deteriorated so much that we cannot care for her ourselves. And, and those are the things that I live with. And the bottom line is, you know, your decision to cook a meal, right? You have to take care of yourself and your family also. Boy, that's a lot. Would you read your poem called The Slow Escape? 
So this, this, uh, the slow escape makes mention of Harry Houdini, who was an amazing uh, magician and escape artist. And um, I think he inspired me <laughs> in this poem, The Slow Escape. This is the part where she curls in on herself in a slow, fragile dance, a nightly performance for an audience of one or two. Rabbits pulling her out of their hats, something clearly up their sleeves. Houdini locked himself in a milk can with a hidden hollow space so he could breathe while he picked the locks. Her routine uses no trick handcuffs, no illusions. This disease knows all the secrets anyway. Pay close attention. This is the hardest act yet. The main actor does an imitation of my mother as she smiles and laughs and lulled me with the patter, fading into a nothingness. Even the great magician could not escape. Uh, the imitation of your mother, just, that that got me. Yeah. All of your poems got me. <laughs> They're, um, I just, friends of ours were visiting us over uh, the, the weekend, and they took a book home with them, and I realized that they knew my mom when she was my mom. And so we had a few moments of connecting on that level and remembering um, one of the times that we had met early in our friendship at a choir concert that my mom uh, was in, in Washington, DC. And uh, it was a really lovely memory for me. Nice. So, yeah. So this is kind of a, a, a personal question. These are all personal questions, I realize, and I thank you so much for being on our show today. And again, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Miriam Green, author of The Lost Kitchen, Reflections and Recipes from an Alzheimer's Caregiver. You mentioned being, quote, both amused and horrified by my use of mom's Alzheimer's. Yeah. Talk to us about how you used your mom's Alzheimer's. Okay. <laughs> And that's, I know this is a, a tough one. So there were times when I needed my mom to do something like swallow her pills and she would utterly refuse. And so knowing that she would forget that I asked, I would ask again. And then I would ask again and again until finally she would take the pills. To me, I think, to me, that is using her Alzheimer's. Um, but I also did it to my benefit. I'm wearing a necklace, actually, that was hers. And um, I like to say that I liberated some of her things <sighs> that, I, that I knew she wasn't. You know, my father knew, so it wasn't a, I wasn't stealing. But sometimes it felt like it. She stopped wearing certain things, including some of her jewelry. And uh, I liberated it for, you know, to continue using it. So, so it, it, was a, it was a dual way of, you know, on the one hand, I was using it to assist my mom. And on the other, I was also using it to my benefit. And I don't think anyone was hurt uh, <laughs> in, in using the Alzheimer, her Alzheimer's against herself. So I would say that another, another uh, incident was when she had a birthday. And uh, we, I had bought this beautiful frame and filled it with pictures of our family. 
and labeled everyone. And, you know, it was, it was just, I, I thought that it would be really good for her to see it and to be able to recognize us and have our names under our pictures. And um, my phone was not working when we brought it out and she was so excited to see it. So we hit it and replayed the, the scene again and recorded it. And now we have that on film. So I would say that's fine. <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with any of that. Oh my goodness. Wow. You talk about sundowning. This is something that happens evidently. Is this a common trait with Alzheimer's patients that when the sun goes down, things change a little? Talk to us about that. Right. So yes, there are two uh, very noticeable behaviors uh, with Alzheimer's. One is called sundowning. And it does occur when the the light fades and behavior becomes erratic. And so one of the things you can do is just keep the lights on at at certain times, make sure they're on as the the sun is going down. Um, Sometimes you cannot be prepared for the irrational behavior of someone with Alzheimer's. And, you know, be prepared is, is one of the things that I talk about, but it's very difficult to be prepared when you don't know what to be prepared for. The other behavior I would mention is called shadowing, where uh, someone with Alzheimer's follows their caregiver constantly. And um, my dad experienced it certainly more than I did, but I also experienced it even to the point where my mom would stand outside the bathroom door if I had to go to the bathroom because I was her touchstone and she needed to be there. I needed, she needed to be with me. It's the only time I, I, I took care of my mom for a 10, 10 day period that I write about in the book. And the only time I had privacy was when she was sleeping. And how, how does the sundowning affect the sleep cycle? Is her sleep cycle affected? Is that something to look so for? All very, very individual. And there are some people with Alzheimer's who do not sleep. My mom, thank goodness, has never had that problem. She naps in the afternoon and then she goes to sleep sometimes uh, by 8 o'clock. That's probably 8, 8.30 is when she's already in bed and she sleeps all night. Okay. So that shadowing too, that just must be exhausting. All right. So we talked about music and its impact on connections. You also talk about color and the impact of color and specifically the color red. And that has to do with eating too. Talk to us about that because that was fascinating. I noticed all these uh, advertisements for red utensils and toilet seats and all sorts of things on Alzheimer's uh, websites. And I wanted to figure out why these were being advertised. And I came across a, a study. The name escapes me at the moment, but the subtitle was, if you wanted to see your mashed potatoes, you wouldn't eat them off of white plates. Something like that. It was a mm-hmm. study done that showed that Alzheimer's patients were losing weight in facilities. It was often attributed to depression. But what the study showed was that they were eating their food on white plates and mashed potatoes and rice and chicken, which is all very light colored, would essentially disappear to the Alzheimer's patients. So when they gave them colored plates, specifically red, our eyes are built to see red as a primary color. The people in the institutions started eating more food. And, uh, you know, I talk about bathrooms. Why, why would you have a red toilet seat? But often we 
have our, our bathrooms are beige. The walls are beige. The floors are beige. It's a nice color. The towels might be a little brown. You know, there's a little bit of that. But you walk in and the white or beige toilet disappears in that in that color, in that colored room. And so if you add red, someone with Alzheimer's will see the toilet seat. And the mashed potatoes on the plate, and they'll eat more and be healthier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. You have a list of things. I call them tips to reduce stress before visits. And these are things that you discovered through trial and error, right? Yeah. Uh, when, so, so give us some tips on how to reduce stress because, again, and we'll talk about fear in a minute, but an Alzheimer's patient will, will fear change, change of routines, change of places. What are some of the things that have really helped in the past when your mom was still visiting? So my mom, my parents would come mainly on the Jewish holidays and they are intense times with a lot of uh, food, (laughs) wonderful meals and a lot of synagogue going. Uh, My mom used to love to come with me to synagogue and uh, her voice would raise beautifully in song, in prayer. And it was, it was really one of our highlights to be together. Knowing that I had a lot to do, uh, my parents would come early and they would, you know, see the kids. And I would set aside specific tasks that I thought my mom could do, like washing lettuce or peeling eggs or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. I, I would set aside tasks that she could do, feel independent about or that we could do together. Um, that was one of the things that I did. Uh, one of the more extreme things I had to do was take the lock on the bathroom door so that she could not get stuck in the bathroom. So that, and that actually happened, uh, several times, once in her own home and once in my home. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and we thought, we really thought we were had we would have to break the door down. And then inexplicably, she figured out how to unlock the door. So it, it really is like having a child. And so I can imagine that your own getting used to that idea of treating your mother like a child, a child who doesn't know anything. I mean, we're talking really, really young child. That has to be such a, an emotional strain as, as well. And just come into that reality and accepting it. Yeah. Talk to me about fear your own fear when you're when you were in different places with her so there were times when we would be downtown in Natanya Natanya had the wonderful it's it's a mediterranean along the mediterranean coast it's a beautiful city i miss my beach house <laughs> so we would go into town and they have a lovely town center and all of a sudden my mom would dart away from me and cross the busy street and I would have to figure out what was going on and why she was being and run after her. Uh, there was fear in that, in her getting lost, in her getting just, hurt. Yeah. Yes, being hurt. Uh, I would I would direct it inward and say that I think a lot of caregivers fear getting Alzheimer's. Uh, and every time I forget something I'm like, oh, there you are, you know, I have to figure it out. I have to keep going and do things that are going to keep me nimble, my mind nimble, um, because that's a big fear. So what specifically are you doing? And are there any medical tests that you've gone through, chemical things, scans? 
Right. So, so I think that there is, there is a type of Alzheimer's that is early onset that is hereditary. My mom did not have that. So I have not been tested to see if I have Alzheimer's. I, I guess that more significantly, I'm trying to eat a healthy diet, lowering my intake of sugars and carbs and eating. I, the dinner I made tonight was uh, tofu with uh, onions and mushrooms and spinach. And, uh, you know, I've been trying to eat well and exercise. They say exercise is a very good way to keep your body nimble and prevent Alzheimer's. And, uh, you know, I think writing hopefully will help me in the long run as well, keeping my brain nimble. And it's not a guarantee that it'll be genetically passed on, right? No, not at all. No. You have a sentence in there, working body, wandering mind. Was that better than keeping your mind and losing your body? Have you come up with an answer to that one? <laughs> the the mind uh, body, which one's... No. Um, so I, you know, the, the I have a friend whose mother is in her 90s, late 90s, and she physically cannot do anything. But my my friend can still have conversations with her mother on the phone, and her mother is all there cognitively. And I'm a little jealous of that. So, <laughs> you know, again, I don't know. When my mom's body hurts her, she'll probably forget it. She won't remember. You know. Uh, which is good and bad. Uh, Another woman in her facility fell down the other day and uh, is wearing a cast and keeps thinking she can do things with her arm because she doesn't remember that her arm is broken. It's it's a bad situation, however you look at it. Yeah, yeah. Would you read another poem for us? It's a short poem. It's called Alzheimer's Lens. Sure. My, my grandmother, who I mentioned, lived to the age of 101, and I knew her for all of my life, all of my life. Yeah. She, uh, she was a real spitfire in her younger days. And this poem is based on having to have, we cleaned up her apartment where she'd been living. And one of the things that was left to uh, take was this magnifying glass that she had used to read the newspaper and writing and books. And this poem is based on having this lens and it's called Alzheimer's Lens. My mother's mother died in the winter of her years. All that she left us, save for the photos and wrinkled bits of paper and her precious scrabble board was a large handled magnifying glass still wrapped in its original packaging. My mother did not remember, and I, her oldest granddaughter, magnified my grief to compensate. And your grandmother had no loss of cognitive abilities? Uh, Towards the end, she she spoke about her own parents as being still alive. I guess that's where we go. You know, there's there's an image of Alzheimer's as being uh, like a bookcase. And the layers of levels, the shelves of books, the ones at the very bottom are your early memories, and then it builds up and up and up, and the ones at the top are your most recent memories. And somebody comes along and shakes that bookshelf. What falls off first are the first are the oldest memories, and what's left are the earliest memories. 
And, and I think it's an apt metaphor for thinking about how we remember things, how Alzheimer's patients remember things. Um, okay. What they're left with is, is their early life. All right. You talk about, oh, you mentioned earlier when we did our little practice session. And again, this is our first international recording. So there, there might have been a couple little glitches in the recording, but um, I, I think we're doing great. You, talk, you told me about finding a lost song. Ah, yes. What? How, so, tell me. Tell me about that. So, as I mentioned, my mom had been in a choir. She has a, a lovely voice, and she had been in a choir in Washington, D.C., called Zemer Chai, which um, I guess translates to a live song. And um, it was a, a, a chorus, a choral that they used, and both contemporary Jewish music and medieval Jewish music. And there was a song that she would sing every Passover. And I, too late, realized that I didn't have a recording of this song. And I tried to get her to sing it this past year, and she had no recollection of it. And I thought it was lost. I thought it was just gone, and I was sad. And I had searched the Internet via the composer that I thought it was by. You couldn't find it. And somehow in my... One of my searches, I realized that this choir, Zemer Chai, was still in existence and they had a website. So I wrote an email and I said, my mom had been in the choir and now she has Alzheimer's and there's this one song uh, that I am trying to find. And I got an email almost immediately back from a woman who remembered my mom, who was still in the choir, and she sent me the music. And she sent a recording herself singing the song as well. And I, I felt, I, I was overwhelmed. I was really overwhelmed because I felt like I had found something that was missing. And uh, I hope that uh, with my musical, one of my sons is very musical, we will be able to bring that back to our Passover saviors. Has your mom sung it yet with you? Have you played it with her? Could you get her to, could you, re- could you record your own mom singing it? I'm not sure if she'll remember, but it's something I can try. Yeah. She might remember. I think that would be really special to have her voice singing it. Yeah. yeah. How has your mother's disease changed you? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I think that it's made me a more patient person, uh, somebody who's willing to listen to others and realize that Everyone has a story and they come from a place sometimes of deep hurt and joy. And it's up to us to see that. Uh, I, I think I look at, at life in general now through an Alzheimer's lens. Recipes. We haven't really talked too much about recipes. Out of the whole book, what is the recipe that you have prepared the most? I'm not going to say favorite because it might not be your favorite, but what's the one that you've prepared the most? Probably the roasted eggplant and pepper salad. <laughs> I, uh, some of the recipes are very uh, Israeli Mediterranean because this is where we are and our fruit tastes have changed. And uh, we cook a lot with eggplants. Right. Do you have, what's maybe a couple of pieces of advice that you would give to other caregivers out there? couple pieces of so one of them you mentioned earlier was definitely live in the now i really think that you have to set aside the fact that you know you know 
without any equivocation that somebody with Alzheimer's lives in their own reality. And so you just, you have to enter their reality. I think that's what I would say. Enter the reality. Be with them in their moment, not only the moment. And then another one would be throw out your anger. It does no good to be angry at someone with Alzheimer's, um, not only because they can't off, they often can't help their behavior, but because they pick up on your cues. And if you're angry, they'll become angry. And uh, I would say take time for yourself if you're a caregiver. It's very, very important. And I was going to ask if you've been able to follow your own advice. Uh, yes. Um, and I'm trying to leave the guilt behind, as I said, you know, uh, but yes. I do a lot of writing and a lot of reading, and it's, it's very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about your father earlier, and he was the one being the primary caregiver most of the time before your mom had to go into a, a care facility. How is, how is he coping now? He is much, he, he's doing really well. He took an art class, and he has have become a, a visiting chemistry professor at the local university here in Beersheba. And he attends lectures and has made some friends. Um, he has time. He has his own time. And the stress of dealing with my mom on a daily basis has uh, abated to a, a much larger extent. He still sees her every day, though. Beautiful. There's a, another poem in here. I won't have you read it, because I, I, but it's, it needs to be read. You need to read it out there, people who are going to buy this book and read it. Even if you have no one with Alzheimer's in your life, this is such an important, informative, beautifully written book. The poem's called Questions My Mother Asked, Answers My Father Gave Her. And the way you have it set up with the repetition of the question and the different answers is just absolutely gorgeous. So thank you for that. What's next for you? Oh, boy. Um, I'm still writing some poetry. Um, I sat down and started composing something today, visiting my mom when I can, and supporting my dad. That's one of the things that is also on my plate. So, And, that, and that's very important to me. Good. You have a lot of helpful websites uh, in the back of your book, and you talk about signs of the disease. If you're afraid that you're going to get it, these things, you know, might indicate that you will or won't. You have your recipe index. You have a ton of information in this book. And again, I really think this is an important book. I think everyone needs to read it because this is a disease that isn't going away too soon. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible one. You have a blog on thelostkitchen.org, which I'll have a link to in my show notes after this. And I'll have some photos there too. Do you have any shout outs you'd like to give to anyone? Uh, you know, it's funny because I'm sitting here in Israel and I have very strong connections and ties and to the States and to friends and family. I have a brother in California who's probably at work and, and uh, at, at the moment. Yeah, so I would say hi to my brother, Simon. <laughs> Uh, he has come quite often to visit and to see my mom, and that's also really important. Mm-hmm. And your publisher is Black Opal Books? Yes, absolutely. They're yeah. in Oregon. They're located in Oregon. 
There's a beautiful picture on the back there of you with your mom, and I'll, I'll have that photo as well on my website. And that photo just says everything. When was the photo taken? I would say about five years ago. Five years, something like that, yeah. Okay. Any closing words, anything else you'd like to tell our audience out there about Alzheimer's, about dealing with it? You've given us... I want to thank you. This has been a wonderful uh, conversation, and I appreciate your enthusiasm. Well, again, this book, The Lost Kitchen, everyone needs to get it and read it and share it with people you know, because I think most of us know people struggling with it or afraid of it or whatever, and it's just so beautifully written, and I just thank you for sharing this with the world because this couldn't have been easy. So Miriam, Miriam Green, thank you for being on Alligator Preserves. I normally ask my interviewees if they put any any preserves on their toast in the morning, but I don't know. What, what do you have for breakfast in the morning? Oh, well, um, my favorite sandwich is peanut butter and jelly. So <laughs> what, kind, what kind of jelly? Today I had strawberry jam. All right, yeah. strawberry jam. Stay away from the alligator preserves. I've heard that they're a little, uh, have a bite to them. <laughs> Miriam, have a wonderful rest of your day and my best to you and, and your family. And let's stay in touch, okay? Thank you. All right. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at Amazon.com.